My mother says, are you planning to leave? I said, no, no, no. She said, I know you're planning to leave. I had no heart to say goodbye to my mother. I'm Shada Omidvar, and this is The Hopeful, Episode 2, Escape. In this episode, we get to the part in my dad's story where he makes the move to cross the border from Iran into Turkey. My dad is just one of millions of Iranians who fled Iran after the revolution. This moment in history is a really sensitive subject for many Iranians, not just because it's painful to relive the experience, but there is a lot of fear what the current government could do if they found out they were speaking out against them. Many Iranians who regularly travel back home to Iran are extremely cautious about what they say on social media or any kind of public platform. Even in music, movies, and theater, any expression of opposition to the current government, if found out, could land you in prison. My dad himself isn't all too comfortable about this episode, but we agreed we won't be silenced by fear. This part of history is pertinent to the story, and I want to make sure you all understand exactly what was happening at the time my dad left Iran, and even for a while afterwards. Were you in Iran during the revolution? Yes, I was, yes. This is Siavash Alamuti. He's a longtime friend of my dad's, and he's also from Tehran. I, uh, just uh, like Amir, I escaped the country, but I went through Pakistan, and then I went to Spain. Siavash now lives in Vancouver, where he originally met my dad. I knew he did something in tech, but it wasn't until I interviewed him that I googled his name to see what came up. Like so many other Iranians who moved to the U.S. and Canada, Siavash finished his post-secondary education and has had an incredibly successful career since. Turns out he's super well-known for the invention of the Alamuti code, which is what pretty much all wireless phones use to exchange data. He was politically active during the revolution, so I decided to ask him about it to get a better understanding of what was going on when my dad left the country. What was Iran like before the revolution? Well, Iran before the revolution was very much like uh, a Western country, at least in Tehran where I grew up. Uh, it was very modern, uh, you know. Uh, women uh, wore the same clothes as you see women wearing here. There was a bit of a problem with uh, political freedom and all of that. But life on the street was pretty, pretty normal and pretty free. And well, well, how, how did it change afterwards? What did life like what become after that? Well, the first year after the revolution, it was amazing. It was uh, just like the past. Plus, now you had... Uh, hundreds of different political organizations, parties, and uh, that kind of thing. It was absolute freedom and chaos. It was kind of like anarchy, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting that you say it's amazing. So it sounds like more a, a paradise for someone who's politically active, maybe. Yeah, 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 because it was uh, the era, era of hope and change, right? You mentioned you yourself had escaped during or after the revolution right. and came to Canada were you educated in Iran or did you pursue your education here? So I uh, went to this amazing university that which is called the Sharif. It was called uh, Arya Mehr University that was set up by the MIT. So the very top uh, students in Iran would get in. But right after the revolution, a year after the revolution, I was uh, expelled uh, with a bunch of, uh, you know, accusations. Uh, 
some of them which were true, which was, uh, you know, insulting the leader and all of that. I had done that, I have to admit. <laughs> uh, especially, as I told you, the first year was a year of freedom and everybody expressed whatever they liked. So I got expelled from the university and I went underground because the accusations that they have placed against me all had the death sentence. And eventually I got that uh, death sentence because I refused to go to court to defend myself. I would have been killed, obviously, if I did that. Some of my friends did. I made that mistake and they're no longer here with us. This is a really complicated history. To some extent, there was a greater degree of expression for women in the country under the Shah. On the other hand, it was a brutal authoritarian regime in other ways. By the way, Shah means king in Farsi, and during this time, his name was Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The Shah really wanted to westernize Iran. For example, in the 1960s, he was focused on implementing a series of reforms called the White Revolution. The program called for the nationalization of forests, electoral changes to enfranchise women and allow non-Muslims to hold office, and the implementation of a literacy campaign in the schools across the country. If you look at photos of Iran in the 1960s and early 1970s, you see a population of incredibly well-dressed people, women in miniskirts and knee-high boots with big hair full of hairspray, men in bell-bottom jeans and gold chains around their necks. There were also Muslim women who covered their hair or wore a chador, but it was their choice to do so, not one that the government made mandatory. It wasn't all disco and paisley prints, but I'll get into more detail about the downfall of the Shah later on. All right, let's get back to my dad. How old were you when the revolution started and how many years into planning your future are you in right now? Well, like I said, all started when I was 14. Then revolution started a couple of years or a few years afterwards. But I, was, I went to military, I was 18. So four years later, revolution started. But all alone, my goal was to get out of the country. The revolution started in September of 1978, after the Shah ordered a violent end to a series of protests happening throughout the country. There were a couple of reasons the protests started, but a primary catalyst was the economic collapse in 1977, just two years after Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi consolidated his power to establish a one-party state. It's also worth noting that under the Shah, a U.S. ally, political freedoms were severely curtailed. His police force, the Sevak, was notorious for torture and executions until it was abolished during the revolution. Given the strong divide between the rich and the poor at the time, and then the economic collapse, it would make sense that my dad felt like there was a low ceiling hanging above his head and that he'd only ever be able to reach so high in his life. Uh, my goal was to leave the country and to continue get a training, in other words, because I was a mechanic, car mechanic, and I thought if I go outside, get the training, come back with some kind of certificate, and I would potentially, I will have a more opportunity, a better job or better income for myself. So that idea never died off to leave the, to go away. But having said that, in order to go out, I had to do my military in order to get my passport. Once the revolution erupted, a lot of things changed, and leaving Iran became almost impossible if you didn't already have a visa to another country. But at the time, my dad was way too consumed by the love he had for his girlfriend to realize he may have just missed his opportunity to leave. What was the feeling to find to realize that 
you have maybe just missed your a window of opportunity to leave. Was it an immediate realization? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I, I it was I was too much in love or I cared too much for her to realize that because the obviously I, I thought, no, I don't want to lose her. I didn't want to take a chance to lose her. So I threw everything out the window for time being. And I said, no, I stay. I don't, I don't want, I can't afford, oh, I don't want to lose her. He had a bike shop. They were selling bicycles and that kind of stuff. This is my Amma Shamsi. She's my dad's eldest sister and the second oldest out of all the siblings. It was around a year from when they had opened the shop with Apasaka, Muluk's husband. And he really liked his life at the shop, so he did not participate in the revolution at all. At the beginning of the revolution, your dad was in the military service. He never took part in any way in the revolution. The main reason for his migration was because he was heartbroken and emotionally down. He was feeling underappreciated, so he decided to leave, even though he didn't have much money. When his girlfriend broke up with him, my dad was devastated. He was depressed, aimless, and he started drinking heavily. It took a year for me to decide it's time for me to leave because I couldn't stand it being in Tehran anymore because every corner was a memory of her. Every place we went, I had a memory of her. I was tortured every day. So within that year, I decided to, as best for me to leave because I couldn't stand it anymore. My dad goes back to square one to apply for a passport. He received one without issue, but the next problem now was where he was going to go. With the borders closed and no countries issuing visas, his options were incredibly limited. Let's catch up on the events happening in Iran leading up to this moment. After the protests that erupted the revolution in 1978, there were a few main groups who opposed the Shah and eventually pushed him into exile in 1979. A liberal pro-democracy group, the Islamists, and then the socialists and communists. The only group with a leader were the Islamists. His name is Ayatollah Khomeini. And as soon as the Shah left Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini stepped up to lead the country. And on April 1st, 1979, the Islamic Republic of Iran was formed and the Iran as we know it and see in the media today was born. Within a few days, Ayatollah Khomeini rolled back the reforms that the Shah implemented during the White Revolution. He revoked the freedom for women and non-Muslims to vote or hold positions in the government. He opposed modernization and freedom of speech was condemned. Any expression of opposition towards the new Islamic state was punishable by law and still is today. Since the border was closed, the alternative was to escape. And I found the, uh, the smuggler. Smuggler says, if you can go to Australia, you can go through the Pakistan border, it's going to cost you this much. That was all the money I, was, uh, I had saved. And I said, no, I can't. I, I, this is all, all the money I have. I cannot afford it. The war between Iran and Iraq started in September of 1980, just two years after the revolution had erupted. The rise of Khomeini in Iran coincided with the rise of Saddam Hussein in neighboring Iraq. And Hussein did not like Khomeini. Because Khomeini was previously exiled in Iraq, and that is where he began to amass his followers for the new regime in Iran, 
Hussein saw him as a threat to his power. Hoping for a comfortable defeat of Iran, Hussein launched a military offensive. Iranians immediately started leaving the country and they took their money and assets with them, which threatened the economy. Afraid of another economic collapse, Khomeini ordered all borders to be shut down immediately. The war lasted eight years. While my dad started planning and talking to friends, everyone was trying to give their two cents, or tutoman, I should say, the Iranian currency. Australia was another viable option, which my dad did consider for a moment, but his heart was set on the U.S., and there was no convincing him otherwise. My dad heard of two brothers, family friends, who both successfully fled Iran, but one of them came back. His name was Bahman. My dad reached out to him to see if he'd help plan his route and provide some advice for a successful crossing. He said, there's a, uh, two brothers just went to Turkey. One of them came back. I said, how did they go? I mean, the, you know, that's, the border is closed. Uh, how, how is that possible? So I found the guy. I had a conversation with him. And then by then, I was quite adamant to leave. So I met with him. He offered to come to the border with me. And I drew the map. I said, here's the, here's the map. Here's where you should go. While my dad told friends of his plans, he kept it a secret from my grandmother. But she could still sense that he was up to something. My mother says, are you planning to leave? I said, no, no, no. She said, I know you're planning to leave. I had no heart to say goodbye to my mother. The only person I told where I'm going, I phoned the next day to my, my brother. I said, brother... I'm leaving. Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving. And my brother, trying to change my mind, I said, no, I did all my preparation. I bought some gold with the money I have, and I have something, I'm going to go. And the night before, obviously, I was getting sick to my stomach. I was terrified, uh, making a move. It could have been dangerous and all that. Throughout this story, there are three moments that my dad remembers praying to God for help. The night before he left is one of them. So I went to sleep that night, and I dreamt. It's the forest, thick, thick forest. It was nothing but greenery. So I got up early in the morning. We went to the bus depot. I took the bus with a friend, went towards the border. We were in Tabriz, and a friend of mine went to one of these coffee shops and then offered uh, some money to the Turkish driver, see if I can take me to the border. And a friend suggested, don't take any suitcase, no nothing, so this way it would be uh, less suspicious and all that. My dad prepared himself by liquidating his assets. He had saved up about 70,000 toman, which at the time was equivalent to about $4,500 Canadian. He kept a small amount of that in cash, but the rest he used to purchase gold something he could easily sell or barter along his way. He sewed the gold chains into the seams of his jeans and the cash was sewn into the lining of the chest and sleeves of the jacket. He wore a gold ring and had a small amount of cash. But other than that, all he had was his Iranian passport. I asked my aunt Minu, Aminu as I call her, about the moment she and the family realized my dad was gone. We were so upset. I remember we just came back from a trip and we noticed that he's gone. We had a small room. I just went there and locked myself inside and I screamed so loud. I don't remember for how long, but I was crying that I fall asleep. And when I woke up, 
I thought I was dreaming. But when I went downstairs and saw Mama and June is still crying, I noticed that no, that's the reality, that he's gone. And I thought I'd never ever be able to see him again, which was just horrible for me. I, I can't even express my feeling, but I was very upset. Is this because you thought he may not make it across the border? So many things. What is going to happen to him when he goes somewhere else in different country? It wasn't like now to have all those social media to see other stuff. The only things I knew, it's just the different country he went, where he went or how he did. I had no idea. The only thing I was thinking that I'm not going to be able to see him anymore. It was getting afternoon, it was getting dark. And then as soon as I saw the, it says five kilometers to the border, Bazargan border, I got off. I got off, said goodbye to the driver, and I started running. I started running towards the Russian uh, mountain. I can't remember how, how long I ran. I ran, he said to me, I run as far as possible from the main road, then make a left turn. So I made a left turn, now it's a pitch black. I'm kind of see everything, objects. I see things. I'm delusioning. Some, what is this? What is that? I'm so afraid. And then he stops. My dad runs right up to what seems to be a massive hole in the ground. I looked and I said to myself, I saw it, you know, it made me have a shortcut. And I thought, no, if I twist my ankle or something happens, break my leg, then I'm going to be get stranded. Who knows what's going to happen? So I decided to go round it. By the time I came back, I looked up. I almost saw two, three story high, uh, almost like it would drop a cliff. So I looked up this border on Google Maps. I was curious about the geography and wanted to fact check some of the things my dad was saying. When I turned the map to satellite mode, I could see this black hole my dad was talking about. And it turns out it's the site of a large crater. I figure this has got to be what he's talking about because the terrain around it is generally flat with the exception of surrounding mountains. Otherwise, I can't see any cliff ridges. The crater is described to be 60 meters deep and 35 meters in diameter. So if my dad had decided to jump, that would have without a doubt been the end of his journey right there. So I carry on, I carry on, and I got into that field, sugarcane field. I went deep inside. I, he, he told me, in order to avoid the patrol, you got to go inside. I went in. I think I went too deep. The deeper I, I went inside, the wall became thicker and thicker. My dad kept replaying Bahman's directions in his head. He was trying to move as quickly as possible, a walk that was nearly a run. By then, it was pitch black, but it was... Uh, the lucky part was the moonlight. At the uh, Turkish border, there's a highest peak mountain. Uh, uh, there's always a snow cap. There's always white. So it shines from miles, miles wide. It shines. He said, that's your beacon. So you go towards that. No matter where you go, make sure that is, that's your west. You're heading towards it. You're facing the mountain you go. But when he was in the sugarcane field, the sugarcanes were so tall that he couldn't see the mountain anymore. So I didn't know which way I'm going. So I decided to change the direction, backtrack a bit. And 
I came to the opening. I put a one foot forward, and then my knee, my foot went all the way down to uh, to my hip. And he steps right into a swamp. Luckily, he only put one foot in because he was able to pull himself and his shoe back out. My dad was getting exhausted, hungry, and dehydrated. He laid down on top of the sugarcane stalks to take a break. Every so often, he'd wake back up and take a few more steps until he felt like he couldn't move anymore. He'd sleep a little bit by little bit, each time moving a few more meters when he woke up. He willed himself to keep going. So I carry on, I carry on, I don't know for how long, and I saw the lights. I came out, backtrack a bit, I changed the direction, I came out. And I saw the both uh, Iranian border and then uh, the Turkish border. So by then, I got to clear field. I knew I was past the Iranian border. I was in before a Turkish border. So I was walking and I was walking. I came to the almost like a road, uh, back road. And I was I was coming down this, uh, uh, by the slope of the side of the mountain. I saw the car coming. I saw the headlight and I froze. For a second, I thought, should I go for it or should I stop? If I thought if I was stopped, they may be able to see me. But back then, I, I didn't know how much they could see beyond the headlight or they, they could see me. So I decided to run for it. I ran across. As soon as I uh, went to the flat uh, field, I just lay down, played dead. Didn't move, uh, move, and the car just uh, went by. I figured there was, there was Tur- uh, uh, Turkish patrol or border patrol. So I got lucky, they didn't see me. They had every right then to shoot me right there in the border because I was crossing the border illegally. So they, no one would know where I was or what happened to me. It was still dark out when my dad passed the Turkish border, but he could tell the sun was going to rise soon. I could see the village actually from far away. I thought I should go inside the village. Maybe I can find something to eat or something to drink. But I was afraid that at night, middle of the night, is too much a risk to go to the village. So there was a running water uh, in the creek uh, in, the, in the mountain. I drank some water there. I just lay down. I passed out on the rock. My dad woke up to the sound of the morning call to prayer, the azan as it's called in Farsi. This call to prayer is a sound you can hear from anywhere you are inside of Turkey as well as Iran. In Islam, you pray five times per day and the first prayer begins at sunrise. No matter where you are, you position yourself in the direction of Mecca. By the way, I don't think I've mentioned yet that I'm half Turkish. My mom is from Ankara. Whenever I'm visiting family in Iran or Turkey, one of my favorite feelings is the one that I get when I hear the azan. There's something about it that just grounds me to the moment I'm in, reminding me where I am, and in some strange way, connecting me to a population of people I only visit every few years. You know how they say you could be halfway around the world from someone you love, but if you look up at the sky, you're both looking at the same moon? How's that for an inspirational quote? I carry on towards the road. And I was coming down the mountain. I saw the shepherd, two guys with a shepherd on the road. 
a little bit of uh, Turkish. I asked for a bread and a water. And the guy looked at me. My shoes was all ripping apart. And my pants were all dirty and muddy and all that. And then he asked me in a Turkish, where did you come from? Did you come from the mountain? It was completely in a, in a shock. I said, yeah, I was in a mountain. Shortly after this interaction, someone else came up to my dad to ask him more questions. This person appeared to have an air of importance. My dad suspected he may be a village elder, like a mayor of sorts. He asked, uh, where'd you come from? The Turkish, but one of the guys spoke a little bit of Farsi. Asked, where'd you come from? From a mountain while I was eating. And he said, do you have a passport? I said, yeah, I have a passport. Can I see it? Yes. I showed him a passport. He put in a passport in his pocket. He said, let's go. I'm going to drag him to the back to the border. My dad is then blackmailed. Either they hand him over to the border officers or he pays them to turn a blind eye. By this point in time, Ayatollah Khomeini became more of a tyrant than the Shah was. If anyone defied his regime, then the punishments were incredibly severe. Incarceration, torture, and sometimes even the death penalty. So as you can imagine, my dad was adamant to pay these guys off and move on. He gave me my passport and I grabbed all my cash, what he could find in my pocket. He gave me a few bucks and let me go. I said, whatever, you know, I, I, I didn't care. Obviously, I was disappointed. I was, I was frustrated. He took all the money out, but I had other uh, money hidden. So I didn't have to worry about it. The village elder took the gold ring my dad was wearing along with any cash they found in his pockets. Luckily, he still had gold and money hidden in his clothes. I came to the main road and I hide behind a big, big rock. I watched for the cars to go, uh, go by. The, the cars were, went by, went by, and I saw the, the truck, the semi-trailer truck is coming. So I got up on the main road, left my hand, and then I asked for a ride. The guy uh, stopped. I opened the door to get in, and I saw that on the passenger side, the guy with the uniform. It was a custom officer. I was just froze. I was so scared. I was terrified. He looked at me. I looked at him, and the driver says, come on. I got in the car. I got in the, uh, in the passenger side. The officer sitting next to me. There were incentives at this time for anyone who turned someone in. So not only was my dad sitting next to a border officer, but someone who had potential motivation to bring his journey to an end. So it was first thing in the morning, and then luckily, I listened to my friend. I had no suitcase or no nothing. And I'm with all the ripped shoes, dirty pants. I looked like a local villager. So it wasn't too much as suspicious. I was wearing a mustache. I looked like a Turkish uh, guy to begin with. I try not to eye contact or obviously no conversation or whatever. I looked to my right outside looking at the, towards the horizon. I didn't even bother, but I could sense it. He was watching me, he was looking at me, he was checking me out. While we were going to the first town, the radio was on. It was the first thing in the morning, radio was on. And then on the radio, they, they announced or they said something funny or joke or whatever. The driver and officer start to laugh. Obviously, I didn't understand, I couldn't, I didn't understand Turkish. And then the officer turned around with a surprised expression, why aren't you laughing? 
So I started uh, pretending to laugh as well. And no exchange conversation whatsoever. And luckily, a few kilometers or more, the officer got off. The guy dropped me off at the first town. town. It was called Dubai Aizid. We're now approximately 40 kilometers from the Bazargan border. When my dad got out of the truck, right away he saw a store selling watermelon and bread. He must have been starving. The lady at the store looked at me, looked at me. She says, did you come from the mountain? I said, no, I was, she said, no, I can't tell. You came from the mountain. They they spoke a little bit of Farsi as well. So I sat down, I finished a whole watermelon, whole uh, bread, went to the main highway, main to the road, hitchhike with one of those farmer tractor, took me to the first town, the town was, there were stores, there's uh, restaurants and all that. So I went, found where the bus depot is, found the store, bought myself a pair of shoes, got cleaned up, had lunch, and then uh, the bus was luckily was leaving the same afternoon. The bus was headed for Istanbul, where my dad had another contact. He slept for the first 13 hours of the 17-hour journey until they arrived in Ankara, where the bus went through a checkpoint. Officer uh, guy came, asked for identification. I showed my passport. My passport, Iranian passport, was blank. And he checked, he checked uh, every passenger, checked, uh, came to my turn, he checked my, uh, my passport. And he didn't know what to do with it. He called his superior. I just want to quickly explain what's happening here. If you wanted to leave Iran, you needed a visa. So naturally, when you leave the country borders, you would be issued a stamp onto your passport to prove you have one. So of course, the dead giveaway here for my dad having crossed the border illegally is the fact that he doesn't have this in his passport. Superior came, he checked my passport every pages. He looked at me, he looked uh, up and down, he looked at my pants, he looked at uh, my face, he looked at he looked at the passport, he looked at me again. And after, almost seems like it took forever, but maybe a couple of minutes or so, a few minutes. He closed the passport, he said, let him go. I didn't understand it back then. I didn't understand it right at the moment. That guy was a big, huge factor in my life. It changed the whole direction of it. He could have changed the whole thing where I am today. If he would have said, he had the authority, he had the ability to put me in jail or send me back to Iran. So I didn't understand it back then. That guy was truly an angel because it, would, it could have changed the whole game if he would have decided to take me out of that bus, put me in jail and send me back. My dad then meets up with his contact in Istanbul, the brother of a friend of his. He told him about the last couple of days he had just had having crossed the border alone without a guide and having his life-defining moment at the checkpoint in Ankara. I told him this story. No one believed me. And I, I tried to assure them, and I said, there was, there, there's no reason for me to lie or exaggerate. This is exactly what happened. But this story was, it was unbelievable to them. For me, to number one, to live uh, without a guide across the mountain, and number two, to be able to pass the uh, Turkish point. After about two weeks in Istanbul, my dad learns that he doesn't require a visa to enter Spain. So it was decided. Barcelona would be his next destination. 
Someone adds a fake stamp to his passport to help him get there to make sure he doesn't have another close call. His brother Hossein had a friend of a friend of a friend living in Barcelona. His name was Ahmad. Hossein was able to get my dad his address so he'd have someone to connect with when he landed. Got to Barcelona. Obviously, I didn't know anything. I didn't speak English or, or any Spanish. And I took the taxi. I didn't, had even no idea how much taxi would cost. I didn't even have money cashed to pay for a taxi. So I took the taxi, I went to my friend's house, and then to my surprise, my friend wasn't home. His roommate was home. I introduced myself, I said, I'm a friend of Ahmed, can you pay that uh, taxi fare? So he paid a taxi fare, I went inside. Two days later, my friend showed up. My dad learns that another contact who was supposed to help him get to the US can no longer do so. So Ahmad floats the idea of going through Mexico instead. From Mexico, you can cross the border illegally, and then I'll come help uh, get you from California or wherever I can. In the meantime, we're staying in uh, my friend's house, and obviously I was inconvenient for them. They had three rooms I shared. I slept on the floor. My dad doesn't wait too long before booking his ticket to Mexico City out of Madrid, which he took the train to from Barcelona. But he made his first major mistake. He booked a flight with a layover in Miami. So when he tried to board his flight, they denied him entry since he didn't have a visa to the U.S. And you couldn't enter with an Iranian passport at the time. The next flight wasn't for another three days. So for three nights, he would be homeless. My money was so tight. I was so afraid the money would be uh, not enough. So I tried to the bare minimum as possible. So two uh, out of that three nights... I tried to sleep in the park. I was so afraid. I was so scared in the middle of the night. I hear there any footstep or any noise. So I hop on the bus, go to the airport. I sleep in the airport, come back uh, during the day to the city, imagine walk around, walk around, kill day, and then at night I'll go on a uh, bus again, go to the airport, because at night Majid uh, used to get cold. After three nights, he's back on path and on a direct flight heading for Mexico City. I landed in Mexico. I can't remember how I found or uh, how I did. I went around the without even uh, speaking in English or language. This is a part of my dad's story that I can't imagine how he managed. He didn't speak English, let alone any Spanish. And remember, this is his first experience having ever left Iran. It's not like he had a phone or internet to be able to look up information and have words translated for him. He went in completely blind. Somehow, he figured out how to buy himself a one-way bus ticket to the Tijuana border. He boarded the bus and settled in to the 2,700-kilometer journey. So I got in the bus going towards the Tijuana border. Sometime in the morning, two or three in the morning, there was a checkpoint on the way to the border in Mexico. So same thing, uh, the officers came, woke everybody up, asked for a passport, and they looked at my passport. They said, no, what are you doing here? Uh, in English or whatever, I, as much as I could understood. And they, they took me down. They took me to in a very dark, dark, pitch black room. They asked for money. I showed them uh, some money, uh, whatever I had. I mean, I had uh, some hidden uh, gold in my, my pants and all that, but I didn't reveal it, obviously but I had some like $50 or so cash in my pocket. They said, no, that's not good enough. They threw him in, in the room, pitch black. I couldn't even see two feet ahead of me. 
all I could hear, coughing uh, or snoring. It was so dark, I couldn't even see anything. So I just sat in the corner. I was terrified. I was scared and I was terrified. And I said to myself, oh my God, no one knows where I am. No one knows where I'm going. No one knows if ever anything happened to me, what's going to happen to me. I was terrified. I was I was in a, in a sh- stage of shock. I didn't know what to do. I was hopeless. And I thought, oh my God, I came all this far and all the money I spent and um, I got caught. Next time on The Hopeful. Everybody was sleeping just like herald of ships. All these people were captured. I asked a, bit, a little bit of English, whatever, how many days, how many days. Everybody says, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And then in that moment, I cried. And then I could hear the pin drop in the whole yard. So she said, do you drink? I said, no, thank you. No, I don't drink. She said, why not? I said, no, I don't drink. She said, no, 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 I'll buy you some drink. She gave me a French kiss on my lips. Oh, my God, I never forget the kiss. I never forget the kiss. And it was a long kiss as well. The Hopeful is part of the Frequency Podcast Network, written and created by myself and Portia Larley. It's produced by Claire Bassard. Sound mixing is by Ryan Clark. Our research assistant is Deepak Bidwai, and our original theme song, the one you're hearing right now, is by Ench. Find him on Instagram at Ench Music. Special thanks to my aunts Minu Omidvar and Shamsi Mondegari, as well as Siovash Alamuti, Marjan Karamati for voiceover, and Semko Salehi for translations. I'm Shada Omidvar. Fabar na mayabad be omida didar. <laughs>